Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back for another fun-filled night after a long night at Kids Open House, because, hey, school's back in season. But we'll save that for another episode for another time. Joining us, as always, is the one and only Henry Sledge. Henry, how you doing, sir? Sorry about that. I had you muted. How you doing, Henry? I, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll try to sound better the second time. <laughs> and speaking of second time, joining us for a follow-up episode, we we're happy to have in his return, Mr. James Scott. James, how you doing today, sir? Doing well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Thanks for coming back. So, uh... You've been a world traveler since you last joined us. How'd that go? Yeah, it was good. I, I joined pretty much every other person in the world <laughs> visiting Italy, which was just absolutely packed. But it was a great trip. So. At any point in time, did you feel like you're waiting in line at like Universal Studio? You know, the, the only thing is it, it, certain places were, were absolutely packed, as you might imagine. But sure. it was at least uh, having a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. I'm just so glad I'm not back in line again at universal studios having done that over and over again so and just think that was probably before the um acquisition and proliferation of all things harry potter at universal studios it's insane down there now with that oh i'll tell you i will say that the harry potter ride that might be one of the best rides out there though yeah uh you know it, it puts uh it's a small world uh <laughs> the shame from, from my childhood and the peter pan ride over at uh neighboring disney world so. yeah it's come a long way since yeah. the old days of wooden roller coasters that would make you slip a disc even at the age of 14 and a half <laughs> <laughs> so true so Henry, I'm going to let you do as we always do. Why don't you pick it up and uh, kick this episode off, sir? Yeah, well, so when we had James on for James Scott Part 1, we talked about his second book, which was The War Below, which James, about a few days after we did our episode, I finished that book, enjoyed it very much. Uh, but we promised that to, to have you back the second time, we would let the rock star talk about his latest album. So black snow man let's let's talk about black snow i mean Please. tell us tell us uh yeah how you uh how you got to one i mean it's, it's kind of cool because you know like barrett tillman somebody whose work i really admire and really like i got a bunch of his books on my shelf i mean he just did a book called 1945 uh and, and that's the title of it and it's it's kind of that pu pushing into the last you know the last big push before it's all over in world war ii and so uh, i think it's cool that that you've done uh, Black Snow, which is about the super forts, uh, you know, hitting Japan. So I'm I'm excited to talk about that. Oh yeah, I think Barrett's book is like uh, I think it's called like When the Shooting Stops. That's it. it. Yes. Uh, yeah, when, yeah. Yes. When the shooting stopped. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of his work as well. And uh, it's it's you know it's interesting. You know, we talked about last time I was on. We talked about the war below and the genesis for this current project, at, which you know Black Snow looks at the March 1945 firebombing of Tokyo or well, the genesis for, for this current project actually grew out of my submarine book. Did it really? Uh, yeah. Because you may recall, you know, it, when you look at those guys like, uh, like O'Kane and Pappy Boyington, all those guys I wrote about that are trapped there <laughs> in this prison camp uh, in Amori, which is a small Island right there in Tokyo Bay in March 1945, when America flies, it's this devastating raid against the Japanese capital. And yeah. uh, they had a front row seat to it all. And so when I was writing those scenes, you know, through the perspective of those guys who were prisoners who watched all of this, I, I, I just marveled at this raid. And just, you know, here you had these B-20, these B-29 super fortresses. I mean, it's just aeronautical monsters, you know, just incinerating Tokyo. And I thought to myself, I need to come back at some point and revisit this story and just do that raid and uh it took me 10 years but i eventually made it back <laughs> and uh you know sort of that winding path that life leads you down but uh you know but the genesis of it grew right out of my research of the submarine war well that's cool because now that you say that it was because i've i've knocked out a couple books since the war below and i think because i knew about black snow you know coming out 
And as I finished up War Below, and I remember that scene where Pappy Boynton, like he's outside watching the bombers come over, and he said something. I can't, and I'm not going to try to remember what it was that you said that Pappy said, but, you know, of course, there were varied reactions. But, yeah, that that really struck me. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool because now we're going to have a book solely about so it's it's about one rate in particular james or is it kind of a broad panoply of the whole super fort bombing campaign strategy yeah it, it covers all of it but it really sort of zeroes in on that that march 9th 1945 raid and it's sort of you know the okay. lead up to that and then yeah that's when everything sort of slows down and I, I try to look at that raid and in, in great detail from not just the you know, perspective of LeMay and the pilots and the airmen and scouts, but also the Japanese civilians on the ground in Tokyo during that time to really kind of give you sort of that full 360 degree view of what it was like. Because, you know, that raid really was a huge turning point. Mm -hmm. That firebombing raid, I mean, we'd been flying missions with the B-29 Super Fortress against Japan, you know, flying these high altitude daylight precision raids trying to knock out their aircraft industry. And we really weren't having any luck. I mean, the uh, Japanese weather was not cooperating. Uh, the jet streams high in the heavens over Japan were just wrecking accuracy. And uh, so it was so bad, in fact, that LeMay's predecessor, um, General Haywood Hansel, was actually fired for his inability to sort of evolve mm -hmm. and whatnot. And LeMay comes in and uh, and he has to sort of, sort of radically re-engineer this whole bombing strategy. And so he's the one who then to, you know, basically reworks it, brings the bombers in low and does all that. So, you know, I look at sort of that, that, that previous period uh, under Hansel and then I look at LeMay and sort of that. And then of course, you know, the, the last couple of chapters actually deal with, you know, the, the aftermath because of course LeMay takes this raid and sort of runs with it, so to speak. And he just keeps punching and punching and punching. And, you know, within the next mm -hmm. last several months of the war, he, he goes on to burn out uh, 64 Japanese cities. And of course that paves the way for the atomic bombings in, in August. How many, how many super forts were on that raid? Uh, about 325 took off uh, just under from Saipan. Yeah. Uh, for, they took off from Saipan, Guam, Antinian. And wow. literally, okay. uh, LeMay sent almost every bomber in his arsenal at that time. And, uh, of course, that many take off, not all of them reach the target. It's a little under 300 that actually reach Tokyo. And, uh, and of course, even with, you know, and that's actually a small amount compared to even later in the war when you had missions of, you know, a, a few of them with up to a thousand bombers. But those you mm -hmm. know, 300 are able to just exact, you know, hellacious damage to the Japanese capital. I mean, 16 square miles just burned up in, in the span mm -hmm. of two hours. So by then he's got them going in to deal to counteract the jet stream. He's got them going in at five thousand. Had that decision been made at that time? Yeah, you know, and, the, and it's it's interesting because a lot a lot of people tend to sort of, you know, they they think that Lemay comes in in January of nineteen forty five and he takes over and he immediately changes the whole program and he and he really doesn't. Uh, and that's kind of one of the, the sort of the, the oversimplifications of the stories that Lemay comes in, you know, and he takes over from Haywood Hansel. Hansel, of course, has long been this proponent of high altitude daylight uh, precision bombing. I mean, he's one of the, the architects who sort of came up with that strategy in the years leading up to the uh, European war. He pushed it throughout the European war. He comes over to Japan and uh, of course he's continuing it there and it simply doesn't work. When LeMay is tapped to replace him after Hansel's fired, the two of them come face to face on the ground in, in Guam and, and, and Hansel says to him, you know, you have to remember these, these guys know each other. I mean, Hansel used to be LeMay's boss in Europe. I mean, Hansel actually wrote a commendation for LeMay that's in his personnel file. Mm -hmm. And Hansel says to him, he says, look, you know, remember when all this is done, we're not going to be judged on whether we win the war, because at that point it was pretty obvious we were, but we're going to be judged on how we win the war. And so by that, he, he's urging him to continue his plan of high altitude daylight precision bombing. Because the idea being that it's, you know, it, it, it it's, less catastrophic for civilians if you're just knocking out pinpoint industry than you are if you're just blanket firebombing everything. Mm -hmm. LeMay says, you know, look, I'm going to do what I need to do to win. And 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 he, but he takes Hansel and he initially continues his program. But LeMay, of course, with his engineering background and, and his, his sort of pragmatic, realistic approach to things, he starts tinkering with trying to figure out the the variant and the equation that eluded Hansel. And, and, and over the course of several weeks, he's unable to do so. And that's when mm -hmm. he makes this decision that, look, high altitude precision bombing is not going to work against Japan. If we're going to end this war, 
if we're going to do so quickly enough that we don't have to put boots on the ground and risk hundreds of thousands of lives and casualties by trying to retake Japanese cities, then we're going to have to sort of re-engineer this whole strategy. And that's when he comes up with, hey, we'll go from 25 and 30,000 feet down to 5,000 feet. We'll go from daytime to nighttime. We'll eliminate formations. We'll fly in one at a time and we will switch out conventional ordinance for incendiaries and we'll burn mm-hmm. it all was this was I'm I'm trying to remember the date because I'm I haven't read Black Snow yet. March but it's 9th on my and list to re- mm-hmm. do I Don? I believe it's March 9th. Yes, it is. So they this was sunset on March 9th, arrive in the skies over Tokyo a little after midnight. All right. So this is after Iwo. About the same time. It's all it's all going on about the same time. So is, is Iwo Jima? Okay. Because yeah. I do I mean, well, it doesn't matter. So where I was going with that question was the the horrific casualties of the island hopping campaign that had been going on through the central pacific you know since go all the way back to tarawa do you think lemay i mean the stuff i I haven't read a lot of specific material about lemay's bombing campaign with with the b-29s and that's why i'm looking forward to reading your book so much but do you think he he really got a sense of americans were just like how many of these little islands are we going to lose thousands and thousands of our boys on? We got to get this thing over. You know, we've got them on the back foot. They're teetering. We just got to put a knockout punch in there and get it finished. So we don't have to send guys like my father would have gone. First Marine division was going right into Tokyo Bay. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing that people don't realize. I mean, just the, the extent of the carnage. Uh, I mean, how many of these blood soaked islands we had all the way across Pacific. I mean, you know, like where your father fought, you have Tarawa as well. I mean, just, I mean, literally March 3rd, 1945, right before LeMay's bombers take off, we just wrap up the Battle of Manila, which is just a slugfest that 29 days, 100,000 civilian casualties. uh, I mean, the the city totally destroyed some of the worst atrocities of the war. And it's also a real window into what an urban fight against the Japanese is going to be like. Because, you know, up until then, it's been it's been islands, it's been jungles and whatnot, but Manila is the first glimpse mm-hmm. that America gets it like, okay, this is what it's going to be like inside Osaka, and inside mm-hmm. Tokyo, inside Nagoya. And uh, in fact, I mean, one of MacArthur's top generals wrote in his personal diary, he said, I mean, is this what it's going to be like if we have to go back to Singapore and Hong Kong? So, I mean, that, that, that idea of what, you know, that reinforced the need to end this war by bombing. And, of course, it's important to remember, too, you know, at this point in the war, I mean, Americans are pretty fatigued. Yeah. The war against Germany has taken a lot longer than people thought. Mm-hmm. The whole promise of precision bombing, collapsing the German economy like a house of cards did not pan out. Instead, it takes the British, you know, firebombing. It takes the Americans sort of pinpoint bombing and still, you know, just goes on and on. I mean, the German economy is far more resourceful than people realized. Uh, and, you know, here we are just now beginning the air war against the Japanese homeland. And, of course, people are thinking, is this going to be a years long effort like it was against Germany? Mm-hmm. And American patience was tired at that point. I mean, the, the war was a massive undertaking. I mean, we got to remember uh, FDR in, in 1944 in his uh, State of the Union speech is, is calling for a budget that would that would dedicate 96 cents of every federal wow. dollar spent just to the war and its debt. Service. And that's not counting war bonds and all that. Oh yeah. So I mean, it's like it's a financial burden. It is a emotional burden. I mean, Americans are. They're tired of this. You know, they're tired of uh, sending their husbands and sons and brothers off to fight. You know, so this thing needs to end. So there's tremendous pressure on people like LeMay and on Hap Arnold to hurry up and find a way to end this thing. And of course, that's mm-hmm. where the B 29 comes in. You know, hey, you've got this hemispheric bomber, you know, that, uh, right. that can just deliver ultimate ruin. And not to mm-hmm. mention the fact that we have history from going back to 1942 from Guadalcanal. For the first few island campaigns, they saw how fanatical and how willing Japan was to expend life on property that wasn't theirs for more than three years. What's going to happen when it comes down to their official homeland? It's just going to be all out, drag out, you know, carnage. And so the body count would have been tremendous. Totally. And the, and the Japanese still had millions of troops in the home islands. You know, they yeah. were uh, they were handing spears out to grandmothers and school kids. I mean, you know, they were preparing for a, a massive defense of the homeland. And so that's, uh, you know, and if you look at, I mean, you know, 
you look at Manila, you look at the Mariana Islands, you look at Iwo. I mean, God, what a nightmare that was. I mean, just the amount of uh, carnage there. And you, you see why the, you know, the, the, the air leaders felt this tremendous pressure to do what they could to bring it into it. Well, you were just pointing out that the B-29 changed things. And for those who don't know a whole lot about aviation, such as myself, let's keep in mind that the B-29 was, at that point, the largest aircraft, but also had a um, pressurized cabin. That was nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, Dual-wheeled uh, tricycle landing gears, an analog computer-controlled fire uh, system. Um, so what was the previous one they used? The I want to say Hudson. The B-24s would have been. No, the, the, the old targeting system on the old school. Oh, the, the Norton? Yeah, the Norton gauge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the yeah. B-29 was like, I mean, it was the, uh, I mean, it was the Rolls Royce. Uh, at least it was, it was pitched that way as the Rolls Royce of the skies for, for aviation. I mean, it was, you know, well, far bigger than the Flying Fortress, you know, which gave it its name, the Super Fortress. I mean, it was mm-hmm. maybe ro- thousand parts, 12 miles of wiring. I mean, it had a tail that rose up the height of a three-story building and a wingspan larger than the uh, Wright brothers' first flight. I mean, it was just a, and it was designed to bridge these vast distances. I mean, it could fly 4,000 miles. Uh, and, and that's important for people to remember. I mean, you know, you compare the bombing raids over Europe. I mean, okay, you could take off from an, from an airfield in England, hit Berlin and come back in, in, in about 1,500 miles. 1,500 mm-hmm. miles gets you just one way from the Mariana Islands to Tokyo. Okay, and, and the same every Europe, if something goes wrong, if you get a bunch of flak damage or fighter damage and engine trouble, whatever, and you have to bail out, you're coming down, you know, hopefully might be picked up by friendly, you know, locals in an occupied country. Uh, but worst case scenario, you're coming down on land, mm-hmm. you know, in the Pacific, until we get Iwo, you're coming down in a vast, dark, unforgiving ocean. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's just a, uh, it's a whole different beast when you get out to the Pacific. And of yeah. course, the B twenty nine for all the hype. I mean, all the money. I mean, it's the single most expensive weapon system of the war, you know. And people forget that, like, you know, the B seventeen billion dollars. Oh yeah, three point seven. I mean, the B seventeen had several years before the war to work the kinks out. B twenty nine, the first ones roll right out of the factory and go straight into combat. And just wait. Tremendous conditions, and of course, that's when you realize all the problems with the plane. <laughs> what, 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 you, what you guys just touched on the expense of it, because I have heard, I have read that it was the most expensive weapon system ever developed. What, it'd what be was fifty-four it, billion today. Yeah, and let was me just pause real quick. Forty engines, or uh, well, I mean, it was it was everything about was it. it. Everything. Well, you yeah, got your I pressurized mean, it, systems. You I mean, when you pressurized, okay, so, I mean, just to give you an example, like when they pressurized those cabins, they had to figure out a new gun control system to be able to work because, you know, no longer could you just sort of hang out of a plane and, and shoot. I mean, everything had to be, I mean, they had to have a computerized tracking system for the gun, right. you know, and so it just, I mean, everything about it was revolutionary at that time. And so, and of course, you know, it was put into production before they even, ever even knew if it could fly. Mm-hmm. And so of course, we end up ordering about 4,000 of them. And in order to churn out that many of them, uh, a lot of them were built at several factories around the country. But the dominant factory, one of them was in, in Kansas. We actually, the federal government built a brand new city in Kansas called Plainview. Wow. It had elementary schools. It had movie theaters and everything just to house this army of workers needed to put together this aeronautical monster. So it really... Uh, I mean, was, I mean, co- I mean, the, the atomic bomb only cost two billion. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, the entire design and development of that plane was three billion, whereas Manhattan was one point nine billion. And and it was a deal compared to the bomb. And, <laughs> and I have to roll back because I know when you compared it to the Rolls Royce, we had listeners like cringe. So let's just say it was the Duesenberg of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a so I'm just you know, I'm just thinking like pricey, expensive mm-hmm. vehicle. Not not talking about Rolls Royce engine no, things I like that. Just, Using it as a generic, no. I should say. Right. It was a whatever, doozy. Yeah. Now, when it came to the plan and preparation for this this raid, obviously they had no control or no prediction of the high winds that would uh, help the final result of the the uh, fire bombing. But did they actually take in consideration the amount of tender and building materials that these Japanese cities were made up of when planning this air raid? 
Yeah, and it's you know it's a, it's a great question. It's a good point to touch on too, and an opportunity to kind of digress a bit because you know Lemay gets all this credit as the as the one who sort of shifts gears and starts to firebomb Japan, but of course that didn't happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not like Lemay just decided to do this and it was all there. I mean, there was great inertia moving in that direction, really, since even the outbreak of the war. I mean, the very beginning of the war, I mean, America realized that we did not have a a very good flame weapon, a good incendiary. So, I mean, that led, you know, to the development of the the incendiary bombs that LeMay would ultimately use, which led to the creation of napalm, which was first tested on the campus at Harvard. You know, meanwhile, as, you know, engineers are developing that, war planners are analyzing what makes Japanese cities so vulnerable to fire. And of course it's, 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 it was easier for folks then to, re, than it is for us today to recall, but, you know, literally less than two decades before the firebombing, of course, a massive earthquake hit Japan in Tokyo and Yokohama and led to a huge fire in 1923 that burned up most of the capital. Oh, wow. And of course that was, that revealed sort of the great Achilles heel of mm-hmm. Tokyo. It's, it's, is just how flammable of a city it was because you know the Japanese. You think of Tokyo today; it's the steel and glass high rises, it's Tokyo Vice, etc. You know, lost in translation. But the reality is, back then, it was a sea of one and two story wooden buildings. Uh, you know, sliding screen doors, um, things like that. I mean, totally flammable, and of course, um, crazy density. I mean, certain areas of Tokyo, one hundred thirty five thousand people per square mile. That's insane. So before Lemay ever even comes on, American war planners are sort of piecing through all this information. And they go so far, in fact, is to track down um, the insurance adjusters for uh, really? businesses who had worked the 1923 earthquake and fire wow. to get a window into just the flammability of it all. So they put together this incre- these incredible target folders on all of Japan's major cities that sort of identified critical incendiary zones, basically burn zones, like what areas are the most flammable, what type of ordinance would help to sort of start these fires and get it going and whatnot. So LeMay has this entire, and then once they get all that together, they then build a mock Japanese village in the deserts of Utah, Dugway Proving Ground, and proceed to burn it all down hmm. over and over and over again throughout the summer of 1943 to test these theories and these ideas and this, these new weapons. And so by the time LeMay takes over, he's got a great new incendiary. He's got an entire Bible broken down of all Japanese cities and their flammability and where to target. And of course, now he's got the B-29 and everything else. So it was really kind of served up for him. All he had to do is really take it and put it in action. And so, um, so again, you know, while LeMay certainly deserves all the credit for initiating it, a lot of the hard work and all that had actually been previously done to prepare him for this transition into firebombing. I was not aware we had done our homework to that granular mm-hmm. of, a, of a degree. I mean, actually tracking down insurance adjusters from the earthquake two decades before. I mean, oh, it's such that is scientific. Reading. Yeah, it's such fascinating reading when you go through and you look at it. Because, I mean, you know, and, and also, I mean, when you look at, like, when they built this mock Japanese city, they also built a German one, incidentally, <laughs> too, to test these weapons, you know. I mean, the, the efforts they went to to achieve authenticity, I mean, they went so far as to go to Hawaii and remove tatami mats from uh, Japanese temples in Hawaii. Uh, and in order to make sure they had enough, they actually built their own tatami factory <laughs> in order to make enough of this iconic floor covering uh, because they really wanted to know, you know, hey, when we're going to set this thing on fire, I mean, we, we want it to be as realistic of conditions as possible. So, uh so, I mean, they did their homework. Absolutely. Was there a sense, James, in your research, uh, and because you may have touched on this at the end of War Below, talking about the POWs and, and all when they saw those guys flying over. Was there a sense of, you know, because the tragedy of, of we knew, like like our, our Navy fighters and torpedo bombers and, and submarines, you know, seeking Japanese shipping, sometimes the tragedy was it was a POW ship. Mm-hmm. And and there were some some very sad instances where you know the, the navy pilots didn't know they were just targeting Japanese shipping. You know, did they did they have it in the back of their mind that hey we need to try to be on the lookout for where American POWs will possibly be housed? I mean, or was there there was probably no way for them to even know because the Japanese yeah. certainly weren't going to demarcate that. 
No, no, exactly. I mean, we knew there were some camps in the area. In fact, if you look at the um, the briefing notes for that mission, they actually talk about the fact that there are some POW camps, but those camps are believed to be outside of the target area. And we do have some terrific accounts from diaries and POWs who witnessed it that I've used in the war below and had looked at again for this, who did see it. But as far, you know, I, I didn't see any cases in any of the research I did of any American prisoners being killed in this rate. That said, you know, a, a dozen of them died in Hiroshima during the atomic attack. So, I mean, there were certainly cases of, of American prisoners of war being affected by these raids, but I, I, nothing I saw indicated any of that for the, for the March 9th raid. Okay. Was, was there anything in your, in your research, like from Japanese diaries and observations of it, do you, do you, seeing these B-29, was that the first time they would have seen B-29s? No, we've been flying them. Uh, we've been flying missions since November. And, uh, and those missions were, um, they were all daylight raids. They were all at high altitudes. And so, and, 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 and they were all really aiming at this largely just a handful of factories in Nagoya and Tokyo that they couldn't seem to knock out because of weather and jet streams and things like that. So the residents had actually grown pretty conditioned to seeing the American bombers. In fact, I mean, they, they joked about it and that some of them would say, you know, I wonder what those pilots are eating for their lunch up there. Uh, but and it, but there was a certain sense of security too because you know they knew that the bombers you know, after a while they sort of developed the routine that, that hey they're just going after those factories they're they're in the suburbs outside of the city we're safe and all that and so the, it, it sort of lulled a lot of them into this false sense of security mm -hmm. all that goes out the window when LeMay changes everything and that's also one of the things that LeMay counted on you got to remember I mean LeMay. You know, LeMay, when he's planning this mission, his, um, his, some of his staff officers said, look, man, we don't know what the Japanese artillery is going to be like, and you need to be prepared. You could lose as much as 70% of your forces on this, and mm -hmm. uh, which would just be staggering. I mean, that's, you know, literally 2,000 lives, uh, 200 bombers. And, uh, but he's, he's pretty convinced that he's right and that this is not a gamble, but this is a calculated risk. But he... Uh, uh, you know, but, but that's kind of hanging over him, but particularly since he's, he's sort of reorienting everything from, from day to night, from high altitude to low altitude, he really kind of, he, he knows the Japanese aren't going to expect it, but such mm -hmm. a drastic change. This is going to be kind of like an, an aerial sucker punch. It's going to catch him totally off guard. And that's why he immediately says, look, if this is successful, we're going to just, we're going to go and hit four others right after we're going to boom, 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 boom. And that's essentially what he does in the span of 10 days. He flies, you know, five of these missions and burns up 32 square miles of, you know, several of Japan's key cities. Mm. You know, I'm familiar with this particular raid, but it never occurred to me that LeMay organized and executed this raid within five months, five short months. And I'm not laughing because it's funny, but uh, the amount of, planning that went into this mission and i'm assuming the amount of planning that went into the dropping of the atomic bomb on hiroshima the fact that they were five months apart it never occurred to me until this conversation so as you're talking about, i'm like doing my math like really that got all that done and that amount of time is kind of tremendous because you know that the hiroshima bombing took a hell of a lot longer than five months to plan so the fact that he's probably double stacking this planning and and getting it all done is just a tremendous amount of work Oh yeah, I mean that's the thing about the, the air war against Japan. I mean it's 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 so transformative, and it but it's also so compressed. I mean if you look at the air war against Germany; it just drags on for years. You know, as the as the British initially start off with precision bombing, they eventually move over to firebombing. You know, the Americans come in and join the fight. They do their precision bombing. The two sort of link up for the around the clock fighting and all that. Then you get over to the Pacific, and it's like boom! It's just this massively compressed period of time in which huge transformation in how we attack Japan and the results and everything else. I mean, it's really fly the first mission against Tokyo late November, 1944. And then the atomic attacks are in August of 45. I mean, it's just a span of just, you know, uh, less than a year. To, wow. to come that massive transformation. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. So LeMay, LeMay after he firebombs Tokyo, and he, and he gets no pushback because, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of concern, like, what is the American public going to say with this? You know, because up until now, we've been precision bombing and all this, and here we are suddenly burning down cities. And, and, uh, and of course, there was no real pushback from the American public at that point. And so LeMay kind of interprets that as a green light and just begins this whole city-busting campaign uh, in which he goes on over the course of 
several months to burn 64 cities. You know, after the big after the big cities, you know, Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, uh, you know, he moves on to secondary and even then tertiary sized cities. I mean, so he's literally burning down cities with 40,000 people in them by the end. By the time it comes around to the atomic attacks, the only reason that Hiroshima still exists as a viable target is because LeMay had previously been ordered to not attack it. He had to leave some bigger cities off of his target list so that the United States would have an intact municipality on which to test wow. this new weapon. Uh, because, I mean, at that point, LeMay's burning down cities of like 30,000. You know, I mean, Hiroshima long, would have long since been destroyed. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, otherwise, you know, so it's really, and that's, you know, LeMay was one of the ones who, he didn't think the atomic bomb was necessary. You know, I mean, he was a good soldier. He was going to go along with what his orders were, but, you know, he was very clear that, look, hey, we burned through most of their cities. I mean, it was kind of gratuitous. And, and part of that's probably professional jealousy. You know, he'd worked really hard to pioneer this whole thing. And he knew that the atomic bomb, the new technology was going to sort of steal the spotlight. And, and of course it did. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, I'm sure there's a, a little bit of that sort of like, you know, jealousy there. So, but there's always an officer's ego involved. It, it, <laughs> it, it, that, at that point, James, was there really even any Japanese fighter opposition left? At that oh, point? No. no, it's interesting. In fact, you see some of these guys because, you know, it, it, it gets into the transformation there because, you know, early on, I mean, by the time LeMay takes over, morale is really plummeting there in the 21st Bomber Command. I mean, you know, the guys are flying these crazy long missions, you know. They're uh, um, over over hostile waters. You know they're dealing with Japanese fighter attacks, artillery. You know that until Iwo Jima falls. You know Japan's executing raids from Iwo Jima against Saipan, and so it's just morale's kind of in this free fall. And then very quickly, once the city raids began and, and sort of America begins to pick up this this momentum. I mean by by July, you know these planes are flying over small Japanese cities, and they're encountering no no fighters, no, no flack, nothing. And and you see in some of their letters and some of their oral histories, the guys starting to say, Hey, this, this no longer feels like a fair fight. You know, wow. here we are, we're just coming in and we're just dumping ordnance and we're burning cities down. And so you really, within the span of just a few months, you go from airmen feeling this total terror and sort of, you know, moral challenges to suddenly, Hey, here I am eating a sandwich while we're burning down an entire city. So it, uh, it, that's what I'm saying. Everything about this thing is just, it's so compressed. It just, they, they move from, you know, one thing to the next so quickly. Well, you touched on it in our first episode with you. I mean, it's not like the Japanese really did some serious self-evaluation and then adjusting of how they handled things, you know, from say 42 to 44 and then on into 45. I mean, which, I think the U.S. Navy, U.S. Army, Air Corps, we were all doing that, trying to perfect our processes and, and dial everything in. And, and that's what's staggering is, you know, they uh, I mean, you know, they they could see what was happening to Germany. I mean, this was no surprise that, you know, that this was going to come. In fact, you know, one of Emperor Hirohito's top advisors after the fall of the Mariana Islands, which for the first time puts Tokyo within reach of American bombers, he says to the emperor, he says, look, Hell is upon us. Yes. And they knew it was coming, but yet they, they were so ill prepared. I mean, they didn't, you know, there was no real effort to, be, to, dig, bunk, to dig bunkers uh, and air raid shelters. I mean, a lot of it was left up to civilians to prepare on their own. And, you know, of course, they dug what amounted to basically a tiny foxhole in their yard. And, of course, you, know, you get a huge firestorm, as, as one of the Japanese people said, it, everybody was roasted like potatoes. You know, they're, um, they're few concrete. Uh, buildings they had like schools and train stations uh, initially provided some shelter, but eventually the glass and the windows melted and the, and the sparks got in and people were incinerated inside of those. Um, I mean, Japan didn't bother to cut any fire breaks through its dense cities. It didn't bother to up its firefighting services. You know, they still depended on neighborhood groups to help put out of fires, you know, with bucket brigades, brooms and bags of sand as that could fend wow. off a napalm incendiary. I mean, it was just, I mean, it's, it's really, it's like so much, I mean, it, there was so much that could have been done that simply wasn't. And it was just this, like they had their head in the sand. I mean, here's, you know, Hamburg's burned in July of 43. I mean, hello. All right. It should have been a, a huge warning, you know? I mean, so it's really almost, two years later almost before Tokyo gets burned. There was plenty of time to have actually taken steps to evacuate your cities, you know, move people out. And they did some of that. They did move 
children between the ages of third and sixth grade out of the cities. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, they, they should have done a lot more. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. His name is James M. Scott. His new book, Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo and the Roads to the Atomic Bomb, is currently available for pre-order. The book comes out on September 6th. So head on over to Amazon or anywhere fine books are sold and go ahead and pre-order James's book. James, thank you so much for coming on and uh, following up and uh, bringing us some much-needed information about the firebombing and Curtis LeMay. And I um, hope to have you on here again soon. We're going to go ahead and uh, let James hit the road and uh, get things done. And Henry and I will continue on and bring you some more quality entertainment. So James, thank you so much. And before you go, you want to get your plugs out there? Yeah, thanks guys so much for having me on. Like you said, it's uh, books available for pre-order. Check it out, Amazon. You can also go to jamesmscott.com. Again, jamesmscott.com. So, Don, Henry, thanks so much, guys. Always a real treat to be on with you and your listeners. Hey, thanks a lot. And as always, every episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, you can find the accommodating or the coinciding episode over WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's where you can find all the pertinent links, photos, cute things, and what have you. And while you're there, go ahead and click on that Patreon link and subscribe. It'll only cost you a dollar a month. That goes a long way to help support what we do here at the Digital 410. You know, we don't have a lot of overhead, but we do have some. And so for every little dollar you guys help donate, that goes a long way. And uh, Henry Fella, how you been, sir? Well, doing, doing okay, man. Just uh, trying to keep the keep the fires burning, so to speak. Um, I'm glad we were able to have a good show tonight. I know, you know, last week, of course, stuff going on, we were not able to have a show. So, well, I think we'd be a little remiss, especially that this podcast oftentimes finds itself up to its elbows in the swampy waters of the South Pacific. That uh, the air date today is August 8th. We all know what yesterday was, so maybe we should get a little bit into some Guadalcanal talk a little bit before we wrap up the show. What are you thinking? Yeah, I, mean, I was actually about to say, is that Lunga Point, the guys going across into uh, going across Lunga Point, that is one of my favorite pictures from World War II. I look back as if I have this picture, but I'm just looking at a green wall. I don't know. It's all green. So, okay. No, I'm laughing because for those listening at home, I have a green screen behind me and I have a photo of Guadalcanal. So Henry asked me about the photos to actually turn around in real life from looking at the green curtain behind me like, oh, stupid. It's not there. But yeah, I believe it is. Um, I, I, that is a fantastic photo uh, that's second only to my favorite which is the the famous photo of your family friend one sid phillips uh, urinating on a uh, palm tree yeah um yeah. as they One got of off the of canal. canal i've i've got the first marine division history the old breed that's the name of that book by george mcmillan and um yeah i've told you and and jeff this story my dad, you know, every veteran got one, right? Mm-hmm. If you were second division, third, or whatever, every Marine got his unit, his division history book. And so Sid got a copy. Dad got a copy. Dad took Sid's, wrote his notes and Sid's. Sid's took my dad's, wrote his notes and my dad's. And by that picture you're talking about, he wrote, hey, you know, everybody was yelling, hey, Phillips, you're going to go down in history taking a leak. Now, for the uninitiated or the the um, people who kind of sneer at thoughts of things like this as far well, how do you know? There's a there's a hundred cameramen out there, a thousand guys. I'm sure there's more than one guy urinating on a tree. And I believe it was in Sid's book or maybe even in the, the war where he actually said, well, the reason I know it's me is because the guys were confused. Here it was 11 a.m. in the South Pacific and the photographer's using a flash. And somebody said, hey, Mac, what's with the flash? Because when you're standing out in the jungle and a flash goes off middle day, it's going to get your attention. And he right. said it helps to minimize the shadow. So even though it's a, And so they knew that he just took a picture because they're all sitting around and a flash goes off in the middle of the jungle. And that's how they knew to tell Sid, oh, hey, he just got a picture of you up there urinating because of the flashbulb that he used in the middle of the, the Guadalcanal jungle at probably 10, 30, 10, um, 9. Yeah, well, no, the land, yeah. About probably ten thirty, ten forty five in the in the I'm, morning time. I'm trying to look, Don, and find the actual. I've, I've got, I've got the book right here. Can you Beautiful. see that? Okay? Oh yeah, that's beaut. Uh, Hold that back so up real quick. I don't know if you ever noticed. Hold that back up to the light. Okay. When you held it at a certain angle, it almost looked like the material on the book was in the herringbone twill pattern, like the uniform shirts. It is. Is it? 
So that's yes. yeah, because it kind of it it looks dark until you angle it. So that's very cool that they use the HBT material for the cover on that. But I want to find that actual. Here it is, page ninety. Wow, that's a quick quick find. Good on you. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm going to read the actual. Sure. Text. It says, Relief moving up. Men of the Seventh Marines take a break before going forward to relieve another Marine unit. Sid, I'm going to show you this. Sid, you know, as best I can, if you can see it. Sure. Sid wrote in his own handwriting, no, H21, 30 minutes after landing on Guadalcanal, August 7th, 42. And then up here on the next page, he says, I was told somebody had just taken our picture and, quote, Phillips, you're going to go down in the history taking a leak. So let me. Yep, that's where the part about wow. taking a leak is written. And then um, the other stuff. I know it's hard to see on my. No, own. it's great. I'm just it's it's so funny. You have the couple of guys down front. They're they're mopping their brow. Their helmets are off, and it's almost like a perfect a uh, crescent moon. <laughs> they're sitting up like 50 yards out in the opening, pissing on a tree. Yeah, I mean he's he's labeled a bunch of these guys too. It's hard, kind of hard to see it, but um, yeah, man, that's a, that's a great picture. I mean, this thing's a treasure. It's it's got notes from my dad. It's you know, it may be worth it may be worth it to try to one day sit down and decipher the names of the people he has listed in that photo, and maybe mm-hmm. we could publish an un you know an unofficial. Here's according to so and so. Because there may be some people out there who don't realize that their great grandfather's in there, their grandfather's in there, and be you know. well the way he did it. Like he's got the guy sitting on a log facing him. He, he labels him as Skip. Oh, okay, I got you. And he's got a guy named labeled Lucas, and then the left, just to the left of Sid is Doc. And then it's really hard. Beyond that, man, it's pretty tough to sure. see. No um, worries. But yeah, I mean, this thing's a treasure. It's got my dad's notes. It's got Sid's notes. I mean, it's yeah, I love that book. You know, we've often talked that during this time in the war, part of the reason that you know one of the key reasons that the Marines were sent down there is thanks to you know World War One. At that point, the Army was in quote unquote no fighting shape. Uh, the Marines were the closest thing we had, at least allegedly, to a battle ready, you know, group. Even though we're out there with 1901 Springfields and uh, mm. web gear and even early state. I mean, right up until before they shipped off, they were still using the old Kelly hel- Ke- Kelly helmets at boot camp. It wasn't, you yeah. know, it wasn't until they shipped off that they got the, the, <laughs> could you imagine, could you imagine talking to Sid and saying, uh, Hey, 19 year old Sid Phillips, you see that cardboard liner in your helmet? This, this annoying, hot thing that caused a rash on my forehead. Yeah, that thing in a worse condition, uh, 85 years from now, will be worth about $3,000. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're probably just kicking them down the beach and everything else, but they're out there with their holly liners and their you know, early gear just fighting everything they have with outdated equipment until well, the end of Guadalcanal yeah. when the Army came and along came the M1 Garens. But as we know, a lot of the old breed, they did not want to give up their 1903s because they got so proficient with them. And I mean, and even to this day, when you see sharpshooters, they're using bolt action rifles, and there's a reason for that. You just have a better mm-hmm. long range accuracy. But, you know, when you're trying to move troops quickly, as we've talked about in the past, about, you know, Chesty Pooler and rightfully or wrongfully how quickly he was trying to get men across areas to achieve their objectives, it's a lot mm-hmm. easier to do when you can lay down eight rounds in, in half a second or, you know, a second and a half. You know, as you're talking, Don, I mean, it just occurred to me, if you, if you want me to, man, I can read a few Please. of these notes that Sid wrote. Oh, um, I think our audience would be tickled. Um, well, I was going to say pink, but then I wanted to go with the sage green of Aaron Will. Oh, yeah. Well, there is no greater color. Um, so he, he wrote here, breakfast, two hard-boiled eggs and shells and one small apple passed out by Navy and wood apple crate on deck galley closed come a long way from the uh the <clears throat> distance futures of people getting steak and eggs before they make amphibious landings yeah he says uh we'll never forget cruisers all right behind us firing and rolling from recoils salvo after salvo engine stopped i remember talking to him about that because when the ken burns thing the war came out in 2007 my family and i went down to mobile 
course, my dad had been passed away since 01. But, you know, we knew the whole story. Ken Burns came into town. He, he chose Mobile because of my the sledge connection. And then he, he met my brother. And my brother said, well, my dad's best friend is Sid Phillips. He lives down the road in Theodore. So that's how Sid Phillips came to be in the war. Sure. Uh, but when the, when the war premiered, you know, they had a premiere, obviously, in every city that they profiled. But there was one in Mobile. And so we went down there for it. Hung out with Ken Burns for a couple of days. But... And I, Sid and I spent some time talking, and it was really cool because I hadn't seen Sid in a long time. And so I had become passionate about my dad's history and all of this. And, of course, been to Peleliu in 1999. And so I had learned. I'd read this book. I've read this book twice, three times, I think. I need to read it again because it will help me with my book. But Sid was really – it was really cool to sit there and talk to him about some of this stuff and him – I remember the thing about the cruisers lined up behind them. They every time they'd fire, the whole vessel would kind of roll from the recoil, um, you know. And it was kind of misty and foggy. And of course, it was all the deep, you know, the cordite fumes and everything hanging in the humid air. Here's a question I have. Um, I don't know if I've seen it documented anywhere. I mean, I know pilots suffered from hearing loss because the lack of insulation in the planes and all that, just the loud ass engines. Mm-hmm. Did your father or Sid or any of their friends suggest or speculate that did any of them suffer from early hearing loss and as they got older that they may have contributed to the mortars? That is a really good question, and I will answer it by saying as as I went through my dad's unpublished material, um, and like this is the second book of the manuscript right here, and you can see yellow stuff. That's all unpublished stuff. Um, but but that's pretty early. That's still during the Peleliu campaign. But when I was going through the Okinawa part, sorry, you know, highlighting what didn't get published, and with the old breed, he talked a lot about undergoing. And I some of this stuff I can't believe they didn't publish it, Don, because he just talked about. I mean, on Okinawa, I mean, yeah, Peleliu was bad, but Okinawa was just they they went through some Japanese mortar and artillery barrages that, you know, he he said literally left him. All of them, not just him. Um, I mean, just dazed. Yeah. You know, utterly dazed. I, and he did not have bad hearing. I mean, my dad, he had his hearing was really good until the last couple of years of his life. I mean, because not only are they firing off mortars, but in those situations, they got all those rifles, machine guns, just everything, just pop, 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 pop. And, you know, things were a lot louder back then. And just, and plus, you're just, shooting mortars off it's just you would think after a while but that's great to hear that they didn't seem to acknowledge any long-term effect here's a question i doubt you can answer for me and hopefully somebody in our, our ever-growing vast audience worldwide by the way shout out to everybody uh not in the united states who listens and shout out to people in the united states who listen but it's always fun to see the yeah. countries outside Absolutely. have you ever in all of your research okay my aforementioned love of the M1 helmet. You got guys, especially in the PTO, they're sitting in under trees, a lot of times out in the open, on the edge of banks, and downpours and monsoons. Have you ever seen a report or heard any witness of anyone being struck by lightning while sitting out in the rain with a steel pot on their head? I have not. I didn't know if maybe the fiberglass so, liner provided insulation, but you would think <clears throat> after hundreds and thousands of guys sitting outside, whether it's in the Pacific or the European theater or Africa. I have yeah, not heard a single report once. or seen a picture of a helmet that was struck by lightning. You, yeah, you would think the odds of that with all those guys, hundreds of thousands of young men with those things, I, you, the odds of that happening are pretty good. I, I didn't uh, come across anything going through my dad's manuscript on that. I can't remember. I think it was. It may have been in Helmet for My Pillow, which, by the way, I was going to save until What You're Reading. I've started reading this again. Um, Good. I love that book. Was it in this or your father's book? I think it was in Helmet for My Pillow that their buddy got crushed by a tree stump from a mortar strike or a rock. I think it may be in Helmet for My Pillow. I think it's Helmet for My Pillow. And you know what? You have inspired me because I'm about to finish. Damn it. I meant to bring it down here to answer the What You're Reading part. I left it upstairs. Um I'm about to finish a little book on the air campaign, Marine fighter pilot. And since this is the anniversary of the start of Guadalcanal or, you know, yesterday, I think I may reread helmet for my pillow. Well, the reason I've, I've been reading, um, the, um, the last voyage and be honest with you, I, I, 
I found it interesting, and it's I, I want to finish it, but it got to the modern day where they're actually looking for the ship, and then real quick before I get into why I started reading Home from my pill again, you want to talk about a family that was destined for fame? The captain, and um, I don't want to try to pronounce his name without the book in front of me because I'll slaughter it. Um, the captain, obviously, ship went down, made history, but his one son grew up, became an engineer, was one of the two people who invented the Polaroid camera as we know it. And then his other son went on to um, design and greatly distribute medical equipment, primarily stents and cardiac equipment, which is how the two of them made so much money that they could finance that search. So not only, you know, their dad make history with being in that vessel, but one of them went on to be the co-partner in the creation of Polaroid cameras, and the other one basically helped with research and financing and all that for stents and cardiac stuff. But I'll get into that a little more later on another episode. The reason I got to read and helmet for my pillow, I've read this book twice. I think I read uh, with the old breed probably six times. I was on Facebook. And as Facebook does, there's always those people in groups who want to prove that they know more than everybody else or they just like to badmouth certain things. And a guy had a legitimate question. He showed the picture of the uniform. I think they maybe got it from a prop website or maybe it was up for sale somewhere. But it was a picture of the P-41s that they wore, that mm-hmm. Leckie wore in um, the Pacific when they came out of the brig. And the uniform had a big black dot on the left chest and then on the right thigh and someone posted on facebook um you know has anybody ever seen these photos i've never heard uh seen a photo or anybody talk about black dots and then someone's like well you know these movies aren't always historic and blah 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 and i quickly went on there and said well actually lecky mentions it in his book a helmet for my pillow he's talking about that's where the guards would shoot you if you try to escape and someone said i would like to see that and i said i'll find it and I quickly found uh-huh. it, but the, the original poster thanked me, and he went and found the PDF. But anyhow, so after reading through three pages, skip around trying to find that, I got to, I was reminded of how eloquent of a writer Robert Leckie was because he had that writing background. He was a writer in the sports book. Right, and yeah. his adjectives, his descriptions, his his way of just explaining the most minute thing, like at the very beginning, and and I, before the show, I'm like trying to Google, like I'm trying to find like old school, which you know they don't exist. Maybe Sid's, somebody in Sid's family might have one. I would love to like see a candid shot because he's explaining how the dirt road out in front of then the camp called New River, how it was basically all dirt road, but it was all lined with these old, just little crappy bar shacks before they got yeah, out yeah, to yeah. the main city and then you would go down to Burn, New Berm or the other big area to go to the and I would just love to see a photo of this these old just somebody standing in the street or taking a picture of somebody in front of some of these old rickety bar shacks but they're explaining how they stole a 12 pack of beer and mm-hmm. it's just he's such an elegant writer and I love this book so much that I'm like you know what I'm going to pause on the other book that I've been kind of dragging my feet on and I'm just going to reread this thing again and why not it's that time of year and so if you guys haven't read, I'm sure most of you have, but if you're new to the hobby or you just dipped your feet into this World War II thing, maybe you're your ETO type guy and you're new to this podcast, I think Henry, Jeff, and I would strongly suggest Helmet for My Pillow needs to Absolutely. be added it's, to it's your a, at-home library. It's a classic. And like, like I said, man, I'm within a few pages of finishing Airborne Aerial Escapades by J. Hunter Reinberg. He was... It became the CEO of VMF-122, which was a Marine Corsair squadron that was based on Peleliu for a while and earlier down in the Solomons flying F-4Fs. But when I finish, I'll finish that tonight probably, and I think I'm going to join you since it is the anniversary of those guys, you know, splashing ashore at Guadalcanal and reread Helmet for My Pillow. Because I've been wanting to do that anyway, uh, you know, and with me working on my project, it would benefit me. So, um yeah, that's a classic, man. I remember reading, you know, I remember I've, I had something happen to it, Don, but I had the copy, the first edition copy that my father had where he wrote his name in it because oh, wow. he had bought it back in the 50s. And he read it and wrote notes in it, Damn. you know, because in his mind, as we know now, 
in the back of his mind, he was like, I got to start, you know, working on my own book. So, so we're talking, you know, late sixties, probably maybe early sixties when he read it. But I remember I probably read that book when I was 12 years old, man. That's one of the first war books I ever read. Oh, I had a, oh, and back to the uniform thing. Well, so you're going to, you're going to take the, the memory off of one person. Well, if you guys paid attention to the HBO miniseries of Pacific, um, one Robert Leckie was a private when he got home. Now, you may ask yourself, how is a guy who joins the Marine Corps in 1942, fights in Guadalcanal, all the way up to Peleliu, and still a private when he gets home? Well, because the miniseries only covered one of his multiple stints in the brig, he is probably in there between four or five, six times. Because prior, no, I think probably four. Was it that many? Really? I, it was three or four, because he mentions at the end why it's part of the reason why he left the Marine Corps as a private, because he was in the brig so much. He was in the brig so much, he became mayor one time. You're like, mayor? Yes, he actually goes through the, and the and it's been so long since you've read it, you probably forgot. He actually goes through the hierarchy of the brig mayor. And people don't uh, realize, for, yeah. and I wish they would have showed this in the series, um, when you went to the brig, they literally put you in a concrete room with a water spigot on the side. Yeah. And it was dark. No blankets, no towels, just you and your <clears throat> aforementioned brown dotted P-41s. And once a day, the prison guard would open up the door and just kick in a tray of bread and empty cans for the water. And basically, it was like... Remember when we used to play dodgeball in school and you had to run to the line and grab the ball and everybody's like trying to get to right. the ball? That's what right. it was like. It was like, it wasn't, there was no distribution of food amongst prisoners. It was slid in the floor and every man for himself. And and he 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 had been in the, because prior to the story we saw in the Pacific where he got in a fight with, uh, I think it was probably Spearmint or Smoothface. I'm not, no, I think it was Spearmint because he was a fan of Smoothface. Um when he pulled the gun on him when he was drunk, that was actually his second time. The first time he went to the brig is when they got caught going AWOL and, and uh, sneaking up the... Um, actually, no, he he got court-martialed, but they were on their way to Guadalcanal, so he spent a day or two in the uh, George S. Elliott's onboard jail. <laughs> they actually, all right, since you just mentioned the George F. Elliott, here you go. Here's a little thing from the old breed where Sid wrote a note here. All right, let's see. The second Jap air raid of the Guadalcanal campaign came at 1230, and this time the bombers not only stopped the unloading, but actually found and hit a target. The USS George F. Elliott was set afire, and with it, much of the supply of the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines. Now, what, I'm, I'm doing a rewatch right sure. now. I just watched parts 2, 3, and 4 um, Saturday night, so I'm ready to jump into part 5 here, you know, probably this coming weekend. But didn't in part... Didn't in part two or maybe in part one, Don, they, they, you had the guys go, yeah, they got the George F. Elliott. And, and that one of that officer, he goes, well, they got all our ass wiped, you know, or yes. our ammunition, all our ass wiped. You know? What happened was, and there's actually, I read, I it may have been in Guadalcanal Diaries or one of the other ones. Um, the practice at that point was, is when they did the initial landings, one person from each platoon, probably the least effective fighting man, was volunteer to stay behind with everybody's gear that wasn't taken on the landing so if you're doing a light landing where you're wearing your upper pack the bottom part of your pack your blankets your tents would be left with your sea bag um with one person from each platoon and then after the beachhead was established and they unload the boat they would bring all your crap and it would be secured you know back in the back lines and you can go and get your personal effects and whatever well when the george s elliott sank um, yes, all of the guys' personal effects, you know, um, anything that Sid and Lecky and the boys weren't allowed to bring on the initial landing that they thought they were going to get later, extra uniforms, extra boots, whatever, all sank. Toilet paper sank, extra ammo, even worse, extra food. That's why um, Lecky talks about um, how they basically had to find food, how they um, mm -hmm. came across the giant bottles of um, sake and all that stuff. But yeah, George S. Elliott was sank, and I think there was some stories about two of those guys, two of the uh, men who was chosen to hang out with the gear, they they got rescued, and I think, I could be wrong, it could be a different, different story, but I think one of them actually was assigned, I don't know, some... 
I, I hope I'm not getting my stories crossed, but there's something about I remember a story about something with some payroll money that one of them got a hold of or something like that. Um, or maybe it was invasion money because, you know, sometimes they would get distributed invasion right. monies. Anyhow, one of them ended up with an ass load of money that he, he stuck in his pockets before disembarking off the uh, George S. Elliott. But, yeah, everything was lost. Everything was Here, lost. Here's your little note written by Sid here for the George F. Elliott. Second Battalion troops cheered the news that the, quote, rusty box was sunk, quote, unquote, with a little loss of life and would never have to ride that thing again. Could actually hear the cheers as news went through the battalion in the jungle. That was before they realized all the crap never made it to the beach. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're right on that. Yeah, so much, I mean, Guadalcanal was just such an interesting campaign, you know, as portrayed in the series and in the books, you know, the landing was uneventful. You know, they were able to land and kind of, oh, well, if this is war, this is good for me, you know, and mm-hmm. kind of built some, you know, com- uh, oh, what's the word? Camaraderie. Not a camaraderie. Esprit de corps. No, I'm thinking more of um, when you get used to something that you take it for granted. It's, um, and then you I'll, become jaded. Uh, uh, oh, whatever. It's not that important. Um, complacent kind of mm-hmm. build some complacency oh this is going to be easy these guys we're going to walk right through these guys and then two days later you find yourself at alligator creek with a bonsai charge up your face so uh mm-hmm. it's just it was such an interesting campaign and the fact that it was people don't realize too you know unless you study the pto once again we we the proverbial we the marine corps landed on august 7th 1942 and the yeah. war, as we mentioned with James earlier, didn't end until 1945. Our active participation, not counting Italy or Africa, but our active participation in the liberation of France and the snuffing out of Germany didn't actually take place as far as ground troops or large-scale invasions until 1944. And right. the boys in the, in the Pacific were still going at it. That's why there was no cheers spreading across the island when VE Day was announced because they knew their war wasn't over. And as kind of we were talking about earlier, when the war in Europe ended and we were still fighting in Japan, as we talked um, when it came to um, Dick Winters, he Mm -hmm. thought, well, surely the 101st is going to go down and fight Japan. So he stuck around, tried to extend his career and hoping to train and thus jump into Japan. But luckily for him and everybody else that battle never came to fruition mm-hmm. but uh yeah so um definitely read helmet for my pillow i need to break out my box set of uh the pacific again i'm loving it man but um what do you got going on what you reading well so like i said i had so you know got this thing coming up about vmf 114 on peleloo mm-hmm. um and uh, so I got this book several months ago, and we all do this, I guess. We'll get a book, you know, put it on the shelf. I may not touch it for months, but we'll, we'll get there because you're in the middle of other books. A little book, 165 pages long by J. Hunter Reinberg called uh, Aerial Combat Escapades. And um, it's a, not a long at all, but it, he, he flew F4F Wildcats in the Solomons, uh, and then in the New Georgia campaign, which is, you know, just up the slot from the Solomons. Uh, and then he flew Corsairs off Peleliu and VMF-122. A great book. I mean, he just just had some several shoot downs, had some close calls. You know, just if you like the aviation stuff like I do, you know, you just you can't get enough of it. But it's uh, just a great little book. You know, in the helmet for my pillow, that's where I got the quote. I I can't I can't remember if it was Chesty Puller who who said it or um or who, but there was a famous quote that he quotes in here because he's talking about his his multiple stints in the brig. That if you give me a battalion of uh, give me a platoon of brig, brig rats, I'll conquer the world because brig rats are basically in the brig because. Usually they weren't in there for committing a super heinous crime. Obviously that happens occasionally, but most of them are just in there because they're independent thinkers. They didn't want to be told what to do. They went out and they didn't follow orders. And those are the type of guys you want for like special missions, you know, behind the line type stuff. And so 
But yeah, you, that that's a that's a thought process for sure. Yeah, but um, you got anything coming down the pike you want to plug? Yeah, I actually I've I've kind of taken a break on doing that, but I'll I'll plug a few things here. So tomorrow night I'll be on Sarah's show. And that's the uh, history behind the page. History behind the page. She was kind enough to ask me to come on, so always honored to be asked. So I'll be on her show tomorrow, Wednesday, World War Two TV with Paul Woodadge. Nice. That'll be my third time on there. Um, with Damon Stout, the guy that I'm collaborating with on the documentary film about his cousin, Cowboy Stout, who was the CEO of VMF 114, that flew off Peleliu. So uh, we'll be on World War II TV Wednesday. And then, uh, man, actually, I got a call. This is a pretty cool thing. I got a call Friday. Uh, from my buddy Jeremy Collins at the World War II Museum, and they've invited me to be on a panel a sp- on a panel at the International World War II Conference with Richard Frank and Saul David. When is that? November 17, 18, and 19. Now, are you going to be there in person, or are you going to be there? Oh, yeah, no, they'll Zoom. be there in person. They're going to, yeah, it's it's going to be great, man. I mean, so, you know, because Saul, Saul's book, Devil Dogs, about is about K-35. It drops on the 15th of September. And I wrote the forward to it uh, because he, he let me read the manuscript and I had some suggestions and things to add or whatever. And, and, and so did Richard Frank, by the way, it's because of Richard Frank that Saul reached out to me. Um, but yeah, Saul and I've been in touch talking about that. The book, he invited me to one of his book launches in London. Unfortunately, I can't afford to you know sure. fly myself to London and, and obviously they're not going to pay for that and I understand that. But um I suggested to him a couple of ideas for doing a book launch here in the States. Um, and anyway, that resulted in me being invited to the international World war two conference to be on a speaking panel with him and Richard Frank in November. Um, so yeah, that's going to be pretty cool. And then, you know, the, I mean, Don, the good news about stuff like that, as you know, man, we've been doing this a little while now, Yep. you know, I always drop a word about what's a scuttlebutt. Sure. Um, because any promo materials, you know, like my bio in World War II magazine that just came out, one of the things it says is co-host of What's a Scuttlebutt Podcast. Beautiful. Anything to get the word out about our show. And you're doing a wonderful job at that. I'm looking forward to seeing you on uh, Sarah's show, and um, we'll probably have her back on our show here again soon, too. Yeah, we'll have fun, man. But uh, I think we're going to wrap up the abbreviated episode. We're only about 20 minutes shy, but that's going to wrap up the abbreviated episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I'm exhausted. As I said, I basically yeah. worked, got off of work, picked up my kid, took her to her freshman orientation at her high school. That was a cluster. <laughs> then raced home. I bet. And so that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We want to thank everybody for their continued support of everything we do here at the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Um, if you're new here, thanks for sticking around and uh, – you can go like, subscribe, and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Music, pretty much anywhere fine podcasts are found. And we don't say it enough. Um, if you guys are listening to this in the audible format in your car, that's fantastic. But we do stream live every Tuesday. So as we are recording this, we are streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch. And so if you ever want to see what our pretty faces look like, you can head over to YouTube.com. Look for Digital 410. Like and subscribe. You can watch all the old video content plus some of my World War II reenacting content. And then you can join us live in the chat every Monday at 9.30. That is Monday at 9.30. Tuesday is my other podcast. But you can find that on YouTube, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Speaking of which, we want to hear from you. You have any uh, topics, ideas for the show? You want to come on and contribute? Please email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production.